The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor, author, comedian, Jenny Slate. Jenny's latest project has been a long time coming. Of course, I'm talking about Marcel the Shell with shoes on. The film follows a recently divorced documentarian named Dean, who, after moving into a new home, stumbles upon a mollusk named Marcel. Marcel and his grandmother, Nana Connie, have been estranged from their shell community for some time now, and Dean, eager to dive headfirst into a new project, tries reconnecting Marcel with his family the only way he knows how to, by making a movie. Here's a clip from the trailer. All right, so I'm making like a little documentary. Oh, it's like it's a like, movie, but nobody has any lines and nobody even knows what it is while they're making it. Mm. No. Mm. Tell me about what's life like. It's pretty much common knowledge that it takes at least 20 shells to have a community. My cousin fell asleep in a pocket and that's why I don't like the saying everything comes out of the wash because sometimes it doesn't, or sometimes it does, and they're just like a completely different person. So it's actually only two of us now. Myself and my grandmother, Nana Connie. We like to watch 60 Minutes because Leslie Stahl is fearless. Nana, make the noise. No, oh my God, no, no, off. That was a clip from Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Presented by A24. The film is currently in limited release, but will expand across the U.S. on July 15th. To learn more about where and when you can see Marcel, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. I have to say, I can't recommend this movie highly enough. It is a special piece of stop-motion animation, a genuinely clever and funny mockumentary, and the kind of warm, big-hearted story that I think we all could use right about now. As you'll hear, Jenny and director Dean Fleischerkamp have been crafting this labor of love since 2010. It was then that they released the short film of the same name on Vimeo, which immediately turned Marcel into a viral sensation. And yet, despite some of that early success, the decade-long road to this movie would not be so easy. 
Jenny and I discuss that in this episode, along with the process of actually making Marcel and all that this character has done for her through the years. We also talk about the unfortunate timeliness of her film, Obvious Child, what it's been like to become a mother in the last year, falling in and out of love, and a whole lot more. If you're curious, Jenny and I have had a series of conversations on this show since 2017. If you haven't heard those, you can find them on our website or wherever you like to listen. They are true time capsules of us through a rather tumultuous five years. But more than anything, I just love that we've kept this tradition alive, that we've continued to check in and see where our lives have ended up in the intervening years. So if you like today's episode, I'm sure you'll enjoy our past conversations. You can find them on our website or wherever you like to listen. But for today, here is Jenny Slate in 2022. Jenny Slate, welcome back. Thanks, Sam. I'm glad to be back, especially since the last time I saw you in person, I, I'd had like two drinks, but it was enough to make me be like, why don't you let me go back on your podcast, Sam? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was embarrassed. I didn't know if, if I would be allowed back. And, and so I'm, <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> That's exactly how I remember you sounding, too. Oh, my gosh. It was my 40th birthday. I had had one tequila and soda, and I was just grabbing people by the collar and making requests. This is a joy for me to do, and it's kind of amazing that we're doing this with Marcel coming out, because it's something I know you have been working on with Dean Fleischerkamp for like 12 years now. So I wanted to walk through how this came to be. On May 15th, 2010, SNL is hosted by Alec Baldwin. Tom Petty is the musical guest. That would be your last performance as a cast member on the show. Later that summer, after leaving the show, you go to a friend's wedding where you, Dean, and a few of your friends are cramped into one hotel room trying to save money. Yes. A couple days into your stay, to cope with, I think, an increasingly dirty room, Mm -hmm. you get creative. (gasps) What happens? That's correct. We were all sharing this room because also, you know, I had been on SNL that whole year, which was like my my most like consistent job that I had ever had in acting. I mean, like I had, you know, worked in a bakery and I was a nanny and a million other jobs, but I had not saved much money. I feel like you get paid like SAG minimum or something to be a featured player in their first year. And I had saved none of that. I had like blown it on ugly blouses and it sucked. So anyway, we're trying to save money. And I was really annoyed. And I started being like, you guys, like, you just like really need to clean up and things like that. And I've told this story a lot, but it is really true. That is what happened. I just was talking in that voice. You know, at the time, I I hadn't done that voice really. So it was weird to me because I, I was like trying to do everything I could do to stay on SNL and Maybe if I had done it, it would have been interesting to people. But anyway, so Dean asked me if he could interview me in that voice because he had to do a show for a friend of ours and he was like going to make a little short film and hadn't done it yet. I don't think that he would disagree, although I don't think he would like it to hear me say that sometimes he's not on time. (laughs) And so he was like, ah, oh, no, can I interview in that voice? And I said, yes. And so he did. And we did one interview where I was just like sort of talking about being small and that's kind of what the char- how the character was sort of emerging and then Dean took that information that had come out of the improv and made Marcel he created how Marcel looks entirely which is really the start of a world the voice is the doorway and the body walks through that he made and then he interviewed me again and was sort of like now that you know what you look like what's your name and I said that my name was Marcel and I'm partially a shell as you can see on my body but I also have shoes and a face. And I like myself. <laughs> it seems like the character Marcel was giving you a voice that you didn't quite have yet as a person at that time. It's like someone in their late 20s. Yeah, I think that's so true. And that I had things that I wanted to believe. And I wanted to believe them because I felt them. 
but it was hard to believe them because the world was not showing me my own narrative in a way that reflected those beliefs. Like, I am powerful. I am funny. People like me. I can do this. I can do what I want. I will have what I want. Or, you know, that's also very open-ended. I will have what I want. But when I would say those things in my own voice, like I like myself, there would also be the soundless, brutal voice in my psyche that would say, no, you don't. And I don't like you. And you're embarrassing. And this is a huge disaster. And you live in a constantly expanding catastrophe. And this is like way worse than any of us inside of here in your mind could have ever anticipated. You're like, actually, you're powerful only to make things bad. And so then to make this small voice that says, I like myself, that is this character that you would be so weird and mean to be rude towards. I think it was like an unconscious way of saving myself. Just wrote those words down. Constantly expanding catastrophe. Maybe that'll be the title of my next book. <laughs> I was going to suggest that. Either that or like, that's what I call my vagina, which is not one of my jokes. I would never Please. make a joke like that. And I hate when people make jokes like that. <laughs> you have one baby and you start making those jokes. Come on. And you know what? I hate that. And I've been going up on stage talking about how much I hate those like vagina after birth jokes and that like usually they're in a movie where the movie has been written by a man and like actually it's usually written by like three men yeah three men and then they're like i don't know they like give their female friend the gift of being able to star in the movie or whatever <laughs> but i <laughs> you really hate that but i am interested in how easy it is to reach for that joke probably because we've all been conditioned to like reach for it the sort of way this comes to be after you do create the voice and you put on this showcase in Brooklyn doing Marcel, I think it's a small three minute piece. It comes out on Vimeo in August of 2010. Do you remember how the days and weeks unfolded after you released that first short? I mean, one thing that I remember is that like I had never been showcased for my actual real sense of humor before the things that I had done in the mainstream or whatever, or like uh, on the big stage, they used my talents, but they didn't have my voice. Even the things that maybe I wrote on SNL, which honestly was also like very few and that I saw something in myself. I had just like never believed in before. I didn't have a way to name it or show it. And I'll always be very grateful for Dean to like literally giving something that was kind of like a spirit looking for a body, a body and the right one too. So I, I just remember feeling like a lot of love, honestly, which is a dangerous thing to get from the internet. But at the time, like I didn't see the downside to that. And there wasn't one for me. I just like felt really good. I think I also had a slight hope that maybe it would change my fate at SNL. But hoping that was also kind of like hoping that the guy that you have a bad relationship with or the person that you have a bad relationship with who you think is about to dump you will change their mind. <laughs> and it's like, oh, no, like you should escape while the door is closing. You know, like you should understand why the door is closing and actually see yourself out, like mentally see yourself out, you know, get out of there. And so it did not save my space. It didn't save my spot at SNL, which ended up being like a good thing for me. I remember hoping that a little bit and and also that it didn't save me from the pain of like being embarrassed. And it's weird to keep talking about something that happened 10 years ago, but also this character happened 10 years ago. It's not like I always say this, but like I don't sit around thinking about it. But the weirdest thing is that what has turned out to be my greatest pleasure in work and the doorway to how I see myself um, was also uh, the ending of something else. And by the way, my astrologer says that this will always be my pairing. And I'm not going to get away from it. What's the pairing exactly? It's endings tied to beginnings. Like I was born just moments after a new moon began. And that also means that a cycle just ended. And all of us, I mean, you know, you just can't unlink the end and the beginning. I want to stay on that because... You escape SNL, and part of that escape is making this project. Because in 2012, you and Dean get married. You move to Los Angeles. You start having meetings about Marcel expanding into something. How did the studio's vision differ from how you imagined it? I think the difference was that there always seemed to be the inclination to add something to Marcel's world usually like an act like an idea for an actor 
Dean says he remembers someone suggesting Ryan Reynolds. I actually don't remember that (laughs) at all. And I don't really remember an exact person, but I remember like, you know, them saying like it would be a good buddy comedy and stuff like that. And that just wasn't interesting to us. It oftentimes that is really wonderful. Like, you know, an animated buddy comedy, like who framed Roger Rabbit or whatever. That is an excellent, perfect film. In fact, it is a perfect movie. I think I think that movie is so scary and weird and good and funny um, <laughs> and weirdly horny. There's like weird. I mean, of course, like very formative horniness in that film with Jessica Rabbit. That was like one of the first images of how to be horny or something that I ever saw. That is not what I expected you to say. Yeah. I mean, and also Ursula, like just boobs in strapless dresses. To me, I was like, ooh, like that is what sexuality can be and like looks like, like big, soft, booby thingies, I guess. Yeah, those meetings, it was just like, I guess we could, but it didn't feel good to us. You know, I think the thing we're circling is what the character meant to you personally at that time. As you were turning 30, you said once, I think that I arrived in my 30s feeling so annoyed and beset by the constant barrage of misogyny in our culture that I wanted to step out of this body. I don't want to throw it away. I don't want to desecrate it or anything. I just want to know what would it be like if I could say all of my feelings when I look back on it. And the more I understand about myself as an artist, I can see what I needed there. I was creating relief. I was creating a new form for myself to live within. I was creating just enough of a disguise so that I could slip into the truth and show it to everyone without them stopping me as a woman at the door. I did feel that way. And now I understand it looking back. A lot of times I'm in the middle of whatever the flux is and I think, oh, this is the worst you've ever been. This is the strangest way that you've ever shown up to try to be in this life. And somehow I still keep going. Looking back, I like that about myself. I do. But I also, at the time, don't think I was so, so, so aware of it. But I think the disappointment that I've always felt with the misogyny in the entertainment industry and in our culture I look back on it like as a young, young woman and I understand what I was feeling, like that I was feeling anger and disappointment. I didn't really know at what because it was so covert, you know, because it's it's meant to be. It's meant to be like a bad feeling that you're afraid of, but you don't know where to point. You just point right back at yourself. That's the trick of it. You know, everybody calls it gaslighting now and that is what it is. But sometimes the term is overused. So like we don't really know what it's about anymore. And it's just become to mean like mistreatment or lying, you know, manipulation. And it is those things. But actually, it is like a really specific game of foolery of turning on oneself. And I do think that I felt that way. And I've been through many iterations of that. I kind of feel it now. I mean, I always feel it, of course, you know, but now, yeah, like, I don't necessarily want to put myself into Marcel because he exists. I I think I'm always looking for like a multitude of forms to go into. As you're moving into different parts of yourself and finding different roles, I think at some point you become a little more settled in Los Angeles. And while you're developing Marcel with Dean, I'm thinking back on all the films and shows you were in. And the one that I keep coming back to is Obvious Child in 2014 which feels painfully timely right now. In the film, you play a wandering stand-up comic who gets pregnant after a one-night stand and is grappling with having an abortion. If you're open to it, I'd love to watch a scene. Whoa, cool. Haven't done this in a long, long, long time. Sure. I can't believe he walked into the store. That's a sign. And that would be a sign saying... Like that I'm a president of Ox and that... He and I should go and start our beautiful life together. You know, I'm not a straight guy. Oh, what? <sighs> but my guess is that most of them would hate that gift. What? You're saying that <laughs> a guy doesn't want a drunk pregnant girl in a box? Uh, if you're a serial killer. Maybe you want to tell him. No, why? Why? You don't owe him anything. You don't even know this guy. Maybe he just deserves to know that like this happened, that I'm not a psycho and I'm going to get an abortion. You know, if I got someone pregnant, I would want to know. If you got someone pregnant, I would also want to know. Probably every newspaper would want to know, because all of a sudden some dude's mouth would be pregnant. Oh my God. 
I'm sure you've been thinking about that film a lot. Where does it land with you today? That discussion about like whether or not to tell the other person that like you had sex with for Donna, it, you know, it was consensual that she had this sexual experience and all of the inflection points in that discussion make sense to me still. But I think what is really sad, obviously, is like it already was hard then when we went on the press tour for Obvious Child and we were like going through Texas and that was that was when Wendy Davis had put on a back brace during the filibuster so that she could, you know, do what she needed to do. And it was still like, we need to make abortion legal in more places. We're going back now to what it was like for like the boomers when they were young. I didn't think that I would ever see a time when what Donna does is a thing of the past. I, I assumed the future would only get... Uh, that we would all just become more empowered and more free. And like, we still can. It's a terrible blow. It's going to have to look a lot different. It is horrible. And lots of people, especially people of color, are going to die because of this and be forced to carry babies to term that they're not prepared to and they don't want to and, and their bodies are just so, so oppressed. <laughs> I just, I didn't see that one coming. Yeah, it's weird that our movie now reads to me like so aspirational and like a fantasy when it was meant to be like you too are allowed to have or can have or it's possible for you to have a complex experience around your own reproductive situation and still also just place whatever that experience is in kind of like a wide assortment of other experiences. And like, I honestly think for Donna in this movie, her creative development and her empowerment as a performer is honestly way more important to her than having the abortion. And that's what we wanted to show, of course, is that like people, especially who want to limit or just make abortion illegal, will tell you that that experience needs to be at the center of your life. And like, that's just not true. It's, of course, important. But what needs to be at the center of your life, in my opinion, and many people's opinion, is your own freedom and empowerment to do whatever you want with your own fucking body. It's an ending tied to a beginning. It certainly is. I mean, I look at, try to look into the future of like what this earth will be for my daughter, what my daughter will be able to do, like what Ida will be able to do with Ida's body. I actually just don't know. But you know, you can never take away what I learned on that film. I just think that along with all of these terrible laws that are going into effect, what the extreme right has in their favor is discouragement that leads to just being so exhausted and isolated. You know, we, we're, we've already been isolated now from each other for a couple of years because of the pandemic. This is a really opportune time for people to say, there's nothing to come back to, don't even try. And that's just not true. I mean, look, in the grand scheme of things, it's just not true. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism, and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point. The market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. 
It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This recurring theme of endings being tied to beginnings. An obvious child, she needed to not have this kid to do all the things she wanted to do with her life. But even in this new film with Marcel, there's so much about beginnings and ends. And as I think about this movie, it is so inextricably linked to you and Dean and the life you shared in the movie. Nana Connie, played by Isabella Rossellini, is named after your grandmother. Dean is playing a documentarian going through a divorce. As we've talked about, there's a lot of you in Marcel. I'm curious, when you and Dean do split up in 2016, you said that even though we had an amicable divorce, I think that's still something that you need to mourn. It is the destruction of a belief system, and that is really really sad. You know, I just think that we each needed different things out of this work that we were doing. It's like as if we had this shaded glade or something that we were still allowed to go to together, even though one part of our relationship had ended and we could go there or like a special space, like a special holy structure. We could go in there and whatever we needed to do in there, we're doing it together, but we're doing like kind of slightly different things. And it's an okay place to do that. And that's like kind of how it felt to be in this process with Dean. You know, I remember it as one that was like pretty drama free, you know, maybe like we, we sometimes have creative disagreements for sure. 
like any actor who's really close to their director, like sometimes I think I can take issue with, you know, just being like, I don't understand what you're saying. Like, I, I can't give you what you want because I don't understand what you're saying. And and that is like a pretty normal, you know, if you can say that respectfully. And it felt like the ultimate death would be not being able to do our work. So we just did it. But when I look at what Marcel is, I think that what can happen sometimes when a romantic relationship ends, which is like so sad, is that you're like, all of the things that this person liked me for I don't think they remember them about me. Like I've just become this other thing that got rolled and rolled and rolled in this weird turmoil and tide of this mismatch, this eventual mismatch that I've just become a totally different shape to this person. But underneath that shape that was made in the motion of the disagreements and and the disrespect, I am still this other person. I just don't want my broken heart to also equal a broken identity of my own loveliness or my my viability as someone for who can be loved you know i don't want that to be completely destroyed just because the relationship ended and marcel is lovable he has a lot of my own personality in there and you know while there's no trace of a woman there's like no trace of whoever the character of Dean's ex-partner was, like there's not a trace of that because that's not really important to me in this work. It was more like, I want Dean and I want myself to still see that this person exists so that we can start a new type of relationship. And I think that, you know, I got that from, from this, like meaning I got my creative empowerment back by working with Dean, not by departing from him. And he's the person that had to give it to me. And I think Dean in the movie, you know, he has said, like, I'm playing a version of myself that doesn't exist anymore. That's something I heard him say. And I thought that was so right on. Is the same true for you when you watch the film? Yeah, because the the big difference is the way that Marcel feels or the state that he's in, which is one of, you know, he's a person living in an environment where he's been ripped away from everyone that he loves and everyone that knows him. It just happened in an instant. I used to live with that feeling, that edge all the time. Like at any moment, your life can just be a sinkhole and you'll be at the bottom of it, like trying to look up at the light, just at other people. And it could happen at any time. I I mean, life is fragile, of course, and you don't know what will happen and everything is impermanent, of course. But I used to really, really feel it and it would affect my moods. And it was a loneliness that I just lived with, a loneliness. And I... I was like Marcel, like, I want to have a good life. I'm not going to just like try to survive. I'm going to have a good life in spite of this thing in opposition to it and walking through that. And I just don't really feel like that anymore. Because we've been doing this together for so long. I actually have audio of what that person sounded like (laughs) in 2017. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Are we ready? Yeah. Okay. This is you and I in 2017. My voice was a lot different than... I think I was 22. You were so young. I mean, you still are. (laughs) Okay, here we are. I think I've had this uh, sort of erroneous assumption and really um, useless belief for a while that the way in which people will accept me is if I like trick them or like dance into the room, Mm -hmm. you know, like that I'm not allowed to just like walk in the door. I'm not like what's for dinner. I'm like a weird sauce for people who have adventurous taste. And the fact is that's not true at all. That's like me being pretty close-minded and coming from a place of like fear and trauma because I was like bullied and can't get over it, which is like only something that I tend to think about now in my adulthood now that I'm in the entertainment industry. But in high school, then I was just kind of like random and then I made friends and I wasn't super popular, but I wasn't being bullied, but I didn't feel very attractive and I I really wanted to be. I was like horny and you know, I just wanted a boyfriend and I wanted to be chosen. Those are feelings that I had. And there's no reason to label them as like cheap or purely narcissistic feelings because they're they're feelings of like loneliness and wanting to be in a love relationship and really wanting to be seen and not having enough of your adulthood and personhood that you can see all of that for yourself. Right. Like now I don't need that at 35 years old. I don't need 
someone to show me me. Finally. And that's probably something that has happened in like the last year, like coming through divorce and, and other things. Like now I'm like, oh shit, I just need to show myself myself and be around people who aren't going to fuck that up for me right now. I just think I was really affected by not being an obvious choice. And now I see that the reasons for why I am like what I am are, um, are just more complex than that. Yeah, I think that's right. But you know what? It takes a long time to really live it. You can understand what you believe and be like, oh, wow, I actually really do believe it. I finally have made it concise for myself. I get it. But if you've been living, seeing yourself one way and thinking that the world works as a series of actions and reactions and that there are kind of like only a, a few of them, it takes a while to undo all of that. And then now what I've discovered, especially after having a baby, is like, okay, so you can do undo the knot the like weird, you know, necklace tangle that is how you feel about yourself developing socially and professionally. And then you can lay that all out and realize you've laid out your shit on like a box. And you're like, oh, wait, well, what's in the box? Not, I mean, what's in the box? <laughs> and it's your head, weirdly. Ugh, such a bummer. Um, no, it's... Um, <laughs> I hate when that happens. It's your childhood. I hate that so much when I find my own head in, in the box and... My marriage to Brad Pitt is over. You know what I mean? It's just uh, too sad. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that because I had that in my notes that that marriage to Brad Pitt, I thought like it, it shouldn't have ended like that. Don't ask. I just never feel like anything I say makes any sense. And then sometimes, I mean, I never hear it back almost probably except for when you like we've had this is what our third interview. And it's like you send me my own info back to myself and I mean, you know, when people ask, what would you tell your younger self? And at least for me, I've always been stumped by that. But I think I finally understand like what I would start to say. I think I get it listening to myself now. And part of it is like, you're doing, you, you actually know a lot more than what you give yourself credit for, but also you could be three times as kind to yourself, to other people, I look back now and see still how much of my own perspective was framed in competition. That kind of stuff really hurt me, especially since I really want to belong to a group. Like, I just like love being a group of friends. I love how it feels to laugh when my friends are performing and, and support them. And like, that's really what I'm like, you know, but I grew up hearing other people just pick each other apart. That's what power looked like to me. And it's what I was afraid of, too. It was both a threat and a resource. So that's what I was like, thought was the deal was. And now I'm realizing like, you really don't have to do that. <laughs> a recurring trend in, in all of our talks is you saying something to the effect of, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know how I'm feeling. And inevitably, you and I sit down again and we play the tape back and so much of what you're saying, whether it was in 2017 or in this next bit from 2020, is exactly what happens. Yeah. And I just want to play this for you. <laughs> this is you and I in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. In closing. Yes. What do the next three years look like? In the next three years, and I can't even get into politics because my head will explode and I need my head. But um, I would like to finish another book, a second book that will be about the intense fears that happen when you find real love. I would like to have a healthy, happy family and for my relationship that, I, that I'm in to just keep being what it is plus more. And um, I'd like to finally finish our Marcel the Shell movie. That's a career goal for me. And I would like to get out of this sort of acting funk that I'm in and gain some belief in myself again and do, do a couple of comedy projects that genuinely are very, very good. Those are sort of basic goals. But, you know, I'd like to return in three years and say, I hurt myself with my thinking a lot less. And... I have 
more peace, and I feel safe. Now, we're talking a year ahead of schedule. Yeah, I still haven't written that book. Gotta write the book. But I will say, I do feel like that. I really do hurt with my myself with my thinking so much less. I really do feel safe for the very first time, like total, total safe feelings in my in my life, like in my personal life. I, you know, I don't feel safe in our country because we now just are going to let everyone apparently have a gun or whatever. But I in my life, in my house, I feel safe. And in my mind, I feel safe from myself. <laughs> like I always have a hope. You know, I have like a lot of aspirations for different kinds of like satisfaction. And I, I feel like that, you know, and I I just like I love being a mother so much. That's really helped me sort of round a lot of those sharp edges. How has it helped? I think that at least for me, also, when you talk about parenting, like you have to be really, really careful to not be like, this is how it is, because it is different for every person. But one thing that can happen and I only know that because it happened to me, is that if you're someone that wasn't really sure if unconditional love is like a real thing, you know, I've always thought a little bit, I have to work for it. Things are kind of shifting. It's unstable, whatever. But you want to believe in that, that un unconditional love is, is real. What I have found is that I am that to my daughter. And now that I can practice unconditional love by giving it to my daughter, I also give it back to the young part of myself that sits in my psyche and like can't tie her tiny little shoes and is saying like, I'm a burden and I make people feel stressed out. And, and most people won't admit it, but they were happier before I was here. And that is a, is a strange feeling to have in myself. I, I feel so oh, like sad, sad in a way that I, I felt that way. I know that I had felt that way for a long time. And so yeah, I'm just kind of this like living in this infinity loop of being able to give that love and seeing it reflected back. And I can give as much love as possible to my daughter. And and I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to. And I just need a relationship like that. It's so nice. And And then now that I do that, I also realize that other people do do it for me. You know, it's like being a certain animal and being able to recognize the other animals that are also your animal. And suddenly I'm like, oh, yeah, my husband does do that for me. And he cares so much about me. Like, I think I went through a lot of relationships, like rejecting a lot of people trying to care for me. I see that now that I pushed away a lot and there's nothing I can do but be sorry that I did that and, and not do it again. But I'm also glad just in terms of that recording that it, we did finish our movie. And I do think that actually that making the movie I Want You Back, the rom-com, really reinstated in myself a sense of confidence. I had just had my baby 10 weeks before. And, you know, even Gina and I were rehearsing with Charlie and Clark and Scott and Manny, all this like group scene where we're kind of having this fight on a boat and we were just like rehearsing. But, you know, I was like going for it. I like a lot of takes, so it's good to rehearse and stuff. But we were doing it and Gina just looked at me and she was like, you're bomb you're bomb. And I just like, you know, first of all, I'm not like cool enough to say that to someone. Like if I said it, I'd be like, you are bomb. You know, it was like, sounds like someone being like, you smoke dope or whatever. Like, it's just like, you don't know what's going on. You're not fun. You're not cool. But yeah, anyway, I do feel like I got that back for myself, but I would like to like, I really, really want to make my own comedy for myself, like a Wayne's World style comedy, like a 90s style character comedy. That's like my new thing I want to do. And re-listening to the tapes, I don't know. I was in my apartment hearing them and it and I, I just got like unreasonably emotional hearing this archive of you through the years. But also it's somewhat an archive of me at that time and that we've done this now for five years through a tumultuous five years. I don't know. It's something about hearing it just like really hit me. Yeah. You know, I mean, when I listen back to myself, like what I hear is like how much I wanted to just try <laughs> to live how I want to live and how like you're just always on the edge of maybe that not happening. I have made so many extreme decisions and some of them like have been wrong for me and like 
I have not at all like stuck the landing perfectly many times over have like not just like fallen on my face, but like truly like smushed my skeleton (laughs) into dust. (laughs) And like, I don't know what I can depend on, like resilience or regeneration or something like that. But that like what I hear as a through line is like, I really do know what I want. I'm not someone that's like, I just don't know where should I live or like, what do I be like? a lot of things were solved for me when we created Marcel the Shell because suddenly there was like this thing. It was like finding an animal that you didn't know existed or like a, a place on earth that you didn't know and you and you go there like to the place and you're like, why does it feel like I'm from here? And then you find out like, oh, because this is like where weirdly like your ancestors were from like a hundred thousand years ago or something like that's how Marcel feels to me creatively. And I still, even after we did that, because like I needed money, had a lot of jobs that like didn't really suit me. I didn't really believe in them, whatever. Some that I really did and absolutely loved and have been, you know, big markers in my career. But generally, in terms of how I feel, I know what I want. And that's why the times when I've been unhappy aren't just like weird, you know, just like sacks of garbage. They are the exact opposite shape or like the exact shadow shape of the thing when it's in the light. They are useful. I'm so glad you mentioned Marcel because we have to go. Yeah. And we've had a conversation about transitions, beginnings and ends, changes, and being ready for those changes. Towards the end of this film, there's a piece of poetry I thought uh, we could end our conversation on, which Isabel Rossellini reads in the movie. I don't know if it was Dean or Nick Paley, our co-writer who chose this for the film, but it stopped me dead in my tracks. And it's The Trees by Philip Larkin. But here we go. The trees are coming into leaf like something almost being said. The recent buds relax and spread. Their greenness is a kind of grief. Is it that they are born again and we grow old? No, they die too. Their yearly trick of looking new is written down in rings of grain. Yet still the unresting castles thresh in full-grown thickness every May. Last year is dead, they seem to say. Begin afresh, afresh, afresh. I like those three reminders at the end, a kind of mantra to begin afresh. Yeah, I mean, you have no choice. I mean, you do. It actually is a constant option. Sometimes you just have to wait a little while. Like there is also winter, of course. But I like that it's repeated three times because it is such a lovely insistence. Well, I wish that for you as we move forward. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. I'm not even going to put a timestamp on when we're doing it next. Let's, who knows? <laughs> Maybe we'll start doing this like more frequently. You know, it's, I just have to get a little bit more successful. <laughs> Whenever you sort of randomly text me. Yeah, or just drunkenly grab you at a party, you know, and just say like, podcast. Anytime. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's always lovely to talk to you. That's our show. Special thanks to Paris Reese, Samantha Cooper, and Alexandra Croton at LEAD. I'd also like to thank Shipra Gupta and the team at A24. And of course, Jenny Slate. You can see Marcel the Shell with Shoes On now in theaters. It expands across the country on July 15th. We'll include links for tickets and more at talkeasypod.com. There, you'll also find our previous talks with Jenny, along with performers like Tessa Thompson, Nick Offerman, Meg Stalter, Bill Hader, Kate Blanchett, Questlove, and Alana Hyam. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support this show, please give us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you like to listen. 
Reviewing the program on these platforms is still the best way for new listeners to find the show. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Maya Canning, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with a new talk with Resma Menicum. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.